In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I always feel like the readings in Lent are kind of like a performance art piece, closely mirroring what it's like to try and dedicate ourselves to spiritual disciplines over the course of 40 days. There's something about those first few days of fasting that produces kind of a sense of novelty, and you keenly feel like it's working. The spiritual feedback loop is whirring. But by now, that discipline feels like discipline, like a weight. Three and a half weeks into Lent, I think it's pretty common that if you haven't fallen off the wagon yet, whatever you've taken up has become a lot more difficult, or at least less immediately rewarding. Our readings this morning highlight this problem, not just as a matter of habits, but as a matter of the persistence of sin itself. But at first, they might not offer comfort. It feels like just as we've started to falter, the lectionary comes in and attacks us with the Ten Commandments, shining the spotlight of the law on our moral frailty. The giving of the law is a foundational moment for Israel, and it makes me think about how we tend to speak about the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution. So we look at these two documents as these great pieces of enlightenment thought written by brilliant minds whose ideas ushered in the modern world. And while this moment at the foot of Mount Sinai is kind of like that moment in American history, the people of Israel are in a sense formed as a nation here, the law is not some disembodied moral philosophy, a set of ideals that the people were meant to aspire to. It isn't a work of human brilliance to gaze at. It is the God of the whole universe of space and time who made all things, giving his people a way to live. When the law is reiterated in Deuteronomy, just before the people enter into the promised land, Moses described the choice in front of them as two possible paths, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. The law isn't an ideology to form a nation, it's a way to guide people in the ways that lead to life. The law shows self-serving and self-motivated people how to be selfless, how to live for each other and for God. It is good to be given a way that leads to life. It is good to be shown what it means to care for our neighbor. It's good to be shown how to love God, to protect our hearts from idols that would woo us away. Peter Lightheart in his book on the Ten Commandments says this, According to scripture, Torah is the perfect law of liberty, a community dominated by disrespect for parents, workaholism, violence, envy, theft, and lies isn't free. Besides, absolute freedom is impossible. In the world God made, the world that actually exists, things aren't free to do or be anything they please. They're free when they become what they are. An acorn is free to become an oak, not an elephant. The ten words guide Israel to grow up to be what he is, the son who rules in his father's house, end quote. It's this picture of following the law that guides the psalmist to say things like what we read this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. It's what led Cranmer to borrow a phrase from Augustine and write the collect that we read this morning. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But we're in our third week of Lent, and so stirring tributes of the freedom found in following God might ring hollow when we've already broken our Lenten disciplines or when they feel empty. Paul describes this conundrum in Romans chapters 6 and 7 where he has to defend the law, saying that it is good but in practice, it awakens sin, which then runs free. 
The psalmist may wax poetic about how the law brings life, but its initial delivery was not received quite as well. In Exodus, we read that when the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid. The law literally put the fear of God into the hearts of the people. And they respond, you, Moses, speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. And as we hear it and we truly examine our own hearts, the law might do the same for us. As we honestly face our own sin and find that even our dedication to walk with Jesus in 40 days is weak and can falter, and we're reminded of how holy the God is that we serve, there might be fear and trembling. And if walking with the law is truly life-giving, then straying with it is truly death-dealing. Sometimes we've been aware of it all along, but sometimes the discovery of sin knocks us on our backs, like when the prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin by telling him, you are that man. He sort of sets him up. He does a whole little narrative thing and woos him in with a parable and then hits him right at the end. Nathan, also performance artist. But that's what it does. A recognition of sin that we didn't know about that was unknown to us can sometimes stagger us. Each week, we confess both what we have done and what we have left undone. In verse 12 of our psalm this morning, we read, But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. The psalmist recognizes, even in the midst of writing about the joy of following God's law, that we don't even know all the ways that we've strayed from it. And so the closer we look at the law, the more we examine it, the more it seems to expose our sin. The more we try to do small repairs on our home, the deeper we find the problems to be, and the more difficult the fix becomes. In his book, Meta History, Hayden White says this about satire as a type of story. The archetypal theme of satire is the precise opposite of the romantic drama of redemption. It is, in fact, a drama of deremption, a drama dominated by the apprehension that man is ultimately a captive of the world rather than its master, and by the recognition that, in the final analysis, human consciousness and will are always inadequate to the task of overcoming definitively the dark force of death, which is man's unremitting enemy. And so wrestling with our sin and with our frailty often feels like satire. Paul will echo the same sentiment, albeit more succinctly, near the end of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? What is apparent to Paul and to anyone else who has worked in their life to try and do the right thing it's that knowing what to do and doing the right thing are different, sometimes remarkably so. But Paul doesn't leave us without comfort. He answers his own question in the next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like every other Sunday school question, the answer to this one is Jesus. Jesus, the culmination of the story that God's been telling from the very start. The biblical narrative begins with God's design for human flourishing, our rebellion against him, but then it goes right into God's rescue project, which begins in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham. At that point, he had done nothing to earn his place as the patriarch of the family of God, through which he would undo the destructive forces of sin. But that's the point. God acts to save us not because we have followed the law, but because we didn't, and we can't, and we need grace. Three weeks into Lent, when your sin is ever before you, when your heart is restless, when you're discovering those secret faults, you don't need to despair because God is the one who wants to free us from, their, from our sin, sometimes even more than we want to free ourselves. But sometimes when God shows up and confronts our sin, 
the result is messy. At first, our gospel reading might feel less like a comfort and more like a judgment. I think when we try to imagine what it would have felt like for Jesus to show up and turn over the tables, we tend to think of Jesus showing up here at church and doing the same. Maybe he comes in and just wrecks the altar rail. But the temple was so much more than just the church. It was the center of political and social and religious life. It was where you made pilgrimages and made your festival sacrifices, hence the tables and the money changers. It was the symbol of Israel's national identity in the midst of oppression from the Romans, the headquarters of their resistance to the Caesar's claims of universal rule, this one spot that, Caesar, you may claim everything, but here Yahweh is king. So for Jesus to come in, to turn over the tables, make a whip of cords and drive out the money changers, and then speak of the temple's destruction, this isn't just rough news for temple workers. This is a condemnation of Israel itself. Now we can look back with hindsight and condemn the people who made the house of God into a marketplace. But let's not be too hasty. You don't end up with this problem overnight. One doesn't one day decide to put a marketplace smack dab in the middle of the section of the temple where Gentiles were supposed to be invited to pray to the God of the whole cosmos. It happens gradually. It, it makes sense. You think, well, you've got to have sacrifices. Why not sell them? Why not sell them right here? Well, it's, it's hard to take Roman currency. Why don't we make our own currency? Well, we'll need people to have a currency exchange. You can see how an, a series of logical progressions gets them to where they are. We might do well to think of the places where we have let sin creep in the exact same way, reasonably and slowly. And maybe with fear and trembling realize that sometimes the way God addresses these sins is not through a slow reformation, but by flipping over some tables. The judgment on the temple is a judgment of Israel, but it helps to note that the temple was never supposed to be the point. The temple was meant to point to God. The law wasn't the end, it was the means to the end. Remember the big story, God's project has always been to deal with sin. We were made for God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And our efforts to white-knuckle ourselves into virtue will only take us so far if Jesus isn't at the center of them. Our effort to bring about healing for ourselves, for our church, for our community will not be successful if God is not at the center. The golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai wasn't an abandonment of the God who brought the people out of Egypt. It was an attempt to manage and control the God who brought them out of Egypt. And like our spiritual ancestors, we can get caught up in wanting to wrestle control from God and do it all ourselves. But we can't do it ourselves. We need help. We can't simply look at a piece of brilliant moral philosophy and work it all out from there. Because the more brilliant the philosophy, the more it'll expose how deficient we are. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say don't take up disciplines. Far from it. What I do mean to say is that three and a half weeks into Lent, the focus isn't the power we have to work out our salvation in ourselves, but exposing sin and allowing God to heal us. Only he can do that work. Paul describes following God as a different kind of slavery, not to sin, but to God. Our work isn't passive, but it's still giving everything up to God. It's allowing God to dictate the terms of our restoration, to allow him to expose sin and maybe overturn some tables so that we can be well. Now, the good news is Lent is 40 days, but it takes 46 to go from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday because we still get our Sundays. We still get our little Easter's throughout the season. Weekly reminders that God loves us and forgives us. That our story is not a satire where we're destined to be stuck in our futility, 
Ours is a story of a God who desires grace, who will heal us and takes the first step. In a short piece about spiritual life, Liz Brunig reflects on the hour between Peter's second and third denial of Christ, wondering if he was aware of what he was doing, if he knew he was going to fail again. And here's how she closes it. The majority of us, who Augustine called the non valde boni, the not very good ones, live our whole lives in the space of that hour. We hope, we try, we will probably fail. It will happen over and over again. The most relatable Christians in literature are not the subjects of hagiographies, but of the kind of morally ambiguous stories that amount in the end to what we call a life. Shisaku Endo's Kichijiro, who repents only one more time than he apostatizes, is perhaps the ideal form. In an era where solutions are judged by their efficiency, it can be hard to accept that this is just how grace works on fallen creatures, like a spiral circling around you over and over again as you repeat the same mistakes, drawing nearer and nearer to your heart the longer you seek it. It isn't that grace is ineffective or inefficient, but that we are, being what we are, imperfect vessels for it. The miracle is that it works anyway." Unquote. I don't know if my narrative of riding the struggle bus three weeks into Lent rings true for you, but whether we're trying to overcome a persistent sin in our lives, discovering new sins in our lives, trying to start doing the things that we would typically leave undone, wrestling with the chaos of a broken world all around us, or some combination of all of the above. I pray that we all recognize that we're at the end of our ropes, that we can't just find the right spiritual workout plan to achieve our goals, the silver bullet. Our hearts are restless when we try to sort it out in our own strength. But maybe I pray that we don't fall into a despair either. Our stories aren't meant to be stories of personal victory, but of God's grace, which shows up exactly when we are weak, exactly when we can't go any further. When reflection on our sin or frailty leads us to say, like Paul, who can save me? May we all hear the soft, still voice of our Savior, who is a safe haven from the stormy waters, who even today offers us himself, where we can find our true rest. And may we allow him to do that holy work in our lives so that we can follow him in the ways that lead to abundant life. Amen.